and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Feeling rushed. Yeah, I know. We got, yeah, we got a big show yeah. and you foolishly bought opera tickets for tonight. So. I, <laughs> I have not purchased the tickets. I hope to just okay. show up and everything will be fine to my, my late night opera. Um, yeah, uh, we, we do have a lot to get to uh, and we do have uh, kind of a hard out in like two hours. So we'll see how it goes. Okay. Uh, only only on this show yeah could we say like that- we got to hurry up and get out of here in two hours um <laughs> but yeah uh, but before we do there's a couple things we wanted to talk about uh and we do have a guest but before we introduce him i wanted to talk about one of our sponsors and then uh something else okay uh, this episode is sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. There are a lot of great movies available right now, among them Caesar Must Die, an unconventional documentary about a performance of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. The twist? The actors are all inmates of a maximum security prison. Winner of the Golden Bear at the Berlin International Film Festival, Caesar Must Die, recently screened, uh, screened at AFI Fest this year and is now available to you through Mubi. There's also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship to redeem now. Please do that. Uh, and then also we wanted to let everyone know, as we mentioned last week and in the most recent uh, movie journal, that we do have uh, our Lord of the Rings commentary available in which we talked about all three theatrical, uh, cuts. theatrical cuts of Lord of the Rings. We screened them all in one day, invited a lot of guests over to uh, to talk about the films with us, including our guest today. Mm-hmm. And that is available at BattleshipPretension.com. You can buy each one for $4 or, as everybody is doing, and that's what we would like, uh, you can buy all three for $10. So you yes. get a couple bucks off there. And hopefully you will listen to them as in the same way we recorded them back to back to back. That would be great. So yes. that the running jokes uh, really have the full effect. Yeah. So they um, really get hammered home and you grow tired of them. Yeah. Uh, but our guest today mm-hmm. was on early. Very yeah, early. He was, uh, he was the first the first one. Yeah. Um, so he didn't uh, get any of the running jokes, I think. No, uh, I don't think so. We might have talked about uh, Saruman's wig a little bit with, with our guest, but I, he can confirm that. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's bring on our guest. He's here to talk about, he's our uh, editor at large, here to talk uh, once again uh, this year about the AFI Fest. Welcome back, Scott Nye. I like to think I established the running jokes and that everything I talked about became just the basis for the entire nine hours. What's interesting is one of the running jokes was not established until the second film because the character did not show up until the second film. Well, naturally. Which was, of course, Shadow Facts, the Lord of All Horses. But at this point, we've... (laughs) To carry that joke over into the podcast is definitely to kill it. <laughs> I, like so let's, to, I like to let's think sl- that this will be uh, essential to Battleship Pretension from now on. Our, It'll be the last Lord. words, and somebody researching your life will uncover that podcast. Like, it explains everything. Um, how are you, Scott? Doing great. Um, let's, uh, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about before, even before we get to the, um, to the topic today, uh, including some sad news. Yes, indeed. Uh, today... Director Mike Nichols passed away at the age of 83. Mm-hmm. He had a nice full career and uh, directed a number of films that people would probably point to and say, this is why I'm into film. 
uh, including The Graduate, the Graduate and then yeah. uh, a film that I love, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Sure. Uh, and then as recently as movies like Closer right. and Charlie Wilson's, Charlie Wilson's War. War. I'm a big fan of Primary Colors. I like that one a lot. I, I never seen that in years. I never saw Carnal Knowledge. I heard wonderful things That's about good. that. It's amazing. It's yeah, a good yeah. one. Far and away my favorite of his. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. The Birdcage. Bird, yep. That's right. Yes. He did Catch-22, which I thought was pretty good. Um, I don't love it's it. Right. It's not as, <laughs> <laughs> let's not speak ill of the man. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's so okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, I mean, he had, a, a that's a pretty good slate of films right there of various genres. And even the ones that were more serious tended to have a, a, a humorous tone. Mm-hmm. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf is quite funny at times. Yeah. You tend to choke on the laughter within two lines <laughs> of, of your, of the laugh line. But, uh, but yeah, and he, I think people think of him as a wonderful director of actors, and I would agree. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty broad uh, slate of that from Nathan Lane to uh, Richard Burton, yeah, which is crazy to think about. Um, Any thoughts, Scott, about Mike Nichols? I've only seen five of his films or so. I'm honestly not the biggest fan, but I certainly respect what he's done over the years, and uh, he's an EGOT winner. You know, that's right. Mm, Got to give that's up right. for that. Yeah, um, you gotta. Um, <laughs> now I regret bringing that up at all. <laughs> but I think we've touched on something I think that is, for me, will be his legacy. In uh, Something that Tyler and I talk about all on the podcast, he had a lot of respect for comedy as a form of drama and as a form yeah. of oh, cinema. Sure. And, you know, it didn't, you know, his, uh, the fact that it, there was comedy in all his films, whether they were quote unquote comedies or not, uh, I think he was a guy that took comedy seriously. And yeah. because he made so many movies, that touched so many people and got so much acclaim. Um, he was a, sort of an ambassador of film comedy to the masses, uh, in a way. Yeah, I think so. And like you said, he, he made film, he made some films that were sort of inherently dramatic, but he understood that the comedy in them would not merely be used as relief. Instead, sometimes the comedy would actually, would actually enhance the drama, which seems counterintuitive, but, you know, in real life, you not unlike a John Cassavetes, you have characters who are looking for the opportunity to to make jokes and be funny. And even if the jokes are funny to you, the audience, the context of them uh, actually helps to enhance our understanding of the uh, our dramatic understanding of the characters. And that's something that I, I I'd say, like, especially in movies like The Graduate and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, where the comedy is still funny. Mm hmm. But it serves to make you so uncomfortable, um, which I respect a great deal. Well, and he got his start in live comedy with mm. Wayne May, and yeah. people should really check out those old bits yeah. if they haven't seen them. Nichols and May. Yep. So, yeah, it's, uh, it is a, a bummer that he, that he passed away, but uh, he did leave behind a pretty solid legacy of film. Let's move on to some fun stuff. Yeah, all right. I'm terrified. <laughs> no, explain, we, what, no. explain what you're doing. Uh, we, ha- we love getting stuff in the mail. All right, yeah. So we got some things in the P.O. box. Yes, one of them is not so fun, but we're going to do the fun stuff first. I know, but you spring things on me, and I don't like that. Oh. Your okay. regular Bruce spring things. <laughs> okay, well, then you don't, you're saying you don't want this thing that's specifically for you, Tyler? I guess so. Let me take a look here. You're going to read it. It's, sorry, right. it's, it's from Caleb. Caleb, all right, says, hey, Tyler, this isn't a hockey jersey, but I thought you'd enjoy it anyways. I like where we're headed with this. I have a feeling this is going to go up on the shelf. Oh. 
<laughs> tell, tell us what it is. It is okay. So it's a collector cap. I, this looks like a pog I, I back think, back I in the days of pog. But I don't think that maybe they don't have the official uh, the official right to say pog. So okay. it just says collector cap, and it's from Batman Forever, and it has Jim Carrey looking well at his. He's looking at his most Jim Carrey uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> from uh, Batman Forever. So thank you, Caleb. Uh, what's fascinating is when you start collecting something, there's so much more than you ever thought, uh, and it's very exciting. So, okay. So what else we got? Okay. So we have – so our contributor, Sarah Brinks, yeah. has sent us a lot, of st- a lot of stuff over the years, and I've always been – I was wearing her hat the other day that she made for me. Oh, yeah. It hasn't quite gotten cold enough for me to wear that hat, but I, mm-hmm. yeah, I look forward to wearing that. Um it, but I, I'm always a little bit hesitant to talk about it on the show because she's it's not like a fan. She's a writer, so I don't know if it's more personal. Right. But this new thing So what you're sent- saying is if people send us gifts, they will be able to write for the site? That's not true. That's how um, I'm taking it. But this new thing that she sent us, congratulations on our 400th episode, Yay. is so cool Okay. that I have to talk about it and show you. Okay. I'm intrigued. Well, one thing, there's bubble wrap, so that's always cool. Oh, man. What the hell is that? It's our, what do you mean, what the hell is that? It's I know, but, but I'm trying to think, yeah. And it's stitched. Okay, that was my question, was There's it didn't look like it too. was merely drawn. Yeah, see? Oh my gosh, it's, finally, it's something... raised and stitched, and it's in a beautiful frame. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's got to go up in here, That's going right? right up on the wall. I got a space right here okay, for it. then I'll put it right on the floor. So thank you, Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for that. 400 um, episodes. Yeah. So if you want to send us fun stuff, you can find our P.O. box by going to battleshipretention.com and clicking on About. Or if you want to send some stuff that isn't so fun. Yes, let's talk about this new, next thing. And oh, I want, geez. Um, now, this guy, um, I'm not, not going to say, well, I guess I can say his name. I think his name is Benji. Um, or it just says Benj. I'm not sure. Mm. For me, it's Benny, and that's an I. Is it Benny Arthur? It's not Benny Arthur. Okay. Um, anyway, so let's call him Benji. Um, wrote me, not us, me, a two and a half... Why are you shaking your head? I feel it's, so bad for you. No, not at all. It's I two know. and a half pages handwritten detailing why he won't be listening to this show or to Hey Watch This anymore. Oh, boy. Uh, it's all about me, and he specifically asked... I mean, not that I would because it would take forever, but he specifically asked me not to read it on the air, so I won't do that. Okay. Um, but you will reference it. Yeah, and because I think name. it's worth talking about. Okay. The, the main tip, because I want to talk about this not just because of Benji, who will be missed, by the way. This is a very funny letter. I laughed a lot um, while, while reading it. I mean, intentionally funny. I'm not laughing at the guy. Yeah, he yeah. intentionally was funny in his anger, and I laughed, and so... Benji, I don't know. I doubt you're listening because you said you weren't. If you're a man of your word, you're not listening. But um, you are You are missed. Um, uh, if you have any kind of honor at all. But, <laughs> the tearing point for him was the things that I said and have said before and have continued to say about Interstellar and Christopher Nolan. And I bring this up because now he's the only person to have quit the show. But I, I've also gotten into a Twitter spat with a different listener based on the same thing and i don't know uh there are other things that i want to come back to in this letter that i want to address because they're about me and could be uh resonant with other listeners as well but i want to start and i wanted to get both your opinion okay your opinions on this thing and it happened a few years ago not to this extent but it happened four years ago when i hated inception i don't even hate interstellar i give interstellar a d plus yeah i gave inception an f um but it happened – I just wonder what is it about people who respond so much to Christopher Nolan that they also are so 
defensive and touchy about it. Not all of them. I don't want to put them all in. But why are there... Why do I get this reaction more from Nolan fans than any other director or or whatever that I badmouth or any I better that I dislike? Why is it? I have a theory. Is it because they know I'm right and they're that <laughs> insecure must, about it? That's clearly it. And surely that attitude is not is not uh, hurting at all. Um, no, I think it's this. Uh, and that's the thing. You say more than any other director, but you get a lot of shit for Wes Anderson, too. And I, not I to this, not to this extent. Here's what I would say. Years because ago, I don't think Wes Anderson touches people the way that Christopher Nolan's films do. Okay. All right. Uh, I agree. Um, different people. Okay. But here's what I would say. Years ago, uh, when The Dark Knight came out, and everybody was going crazy over <laughs> uh, Heath Ledger's performance. And it is right. a good performance. I, I enjoy it a great deal. But Best Joker ever. <laughs> he's no Cesar Romero. But uh, the... Um, I remember you and I were talking, I don't remember if we were talking on the show, but I'm sure I probably said it at some point, is that so many people flipped out over not merely the performance, but also the way the Joker was written because they'd never seen anything like this before. But of course, if you're a movie fan, you see this type of thing, you see this type of performance, or maybe not this exact type, but you see this type of acting and you see this type of writing not a lot, but you, you've seen it before. I mean, we saw the, we saw the way the character was wit- written. We saw it the year before in No Country for Old Men. But so many people, because it was a Batman movie and people saw it that wouldn't have sought out other movies. Um, and I don't mean to say like, you know, Joe Schlub or whatever. And, but just everyone, <laughs> everyone saw, hey. everyone saw The Dark Knight. guy's a friend. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot that you're of the St. Louis Schlubs. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and so a lot of people saw The Dark Knight and Batman Begins, and I think it cha- it might have been the first time they were exposed to a a different type of filmmaking within the the types of movies that they're more that they're more familiar with. And I think it's entirely possible that Christopher Nolan got people into film. People of okay. a certain age, I think it might have gotten them into the world of film. And if you bash that person in the same way, I have a knee-jerk reaction to people that bash Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I feel like it might be that. Um, and I should also mention, in case Benji is listening or in case anyone else has these same complaints, he doesn't just take issue with the fact that I don't like Christopher Nolan's movies. Right. But uh, he said I'm smug and dismissive about them, which is maybe a little bit true. But again... Christopher Nolan is not the only person that I yeah, feel yeah. that way about. Um, and also, to a certain extent, I'm playing playing it up for the podcast. Yeah, like, but, they, but that's if you, the thing is they don't know that. But if you – I mean I write reviews on the website that are not – like I don't get snarky in my reviews. I'm much more – I try to be much more serious and thoughtful. That is true. Um, when I write a review. Um, so I, I, I guess that's, that's part of it. Um, Scott, what are your thoughts uh, I just think Batman fans tend to be kind of assholes. I don't know. <laughs> There's something about Batman that really draws, like, Batman and Wolverine tend to draw some pretty unsavory characters to the world of comic books. But what is it about Inception and Interstellar? Well, it's the, uh, you know, residual effect of, uh, if he hadn't made Batman movies, people wouldn't be so defensive about Christopher Nolan movies. Do you think so? I, I don't know that I completely believe that. I mean, if he hadn't made Batman movies, he wouldn't have gotten to make these yeah, movies. that's right. for sure. But let's say somehow he did. I still think that these same people would be touched or moved or awed or blown away by Inception Interstellar. Yeah. I really think it would have the same... I don't think as many would, and I don't think... 
I don't, I just don't feel like they'd be as rabid in defending him in part because I don't th- feel like there'd be as much of a case against him because he hadn't achieved the same commercial success. Yeah. You know, it's pretty easy to be dismissive of Nolan. What I'm, what I'm getting, and now I feel like a broker record, but what I'm getting from people who react this way is not rabidity, <laughs> as you say, <laughs> but a being overly sensitive. That, that's what, that's the defining trait with both of these people Benji and the uh, Twitter guy that I've gotten into the discussion with, uh, I I just I don't uh, I don't have that I don't think about anything um, that I'm a fan of, and I don't know does that make me a less passionate fan or does it make me a obviously, more secure more secure fan? No. I mean I don't I also don't know the age of these people. I think uh, the ego of men, especially young men, is very fragile. Well, the and, one guy the guy on Twitter specifically he didn't mention his specific age, but I had said something about christopher nolan being the kind of you know actually there's two people on twitter who've given me shit about this <laughs> christopher nolan's I'm surprised there's being, only two frankly <laughs> um yeah two repeated yeah um but christopher nolan being the kind of director that um appeals to high schoolers maybe and that one would tend to grow out of right and i know that sounds um that does sound dismissive to say it that way but I, that is really how i think of it it's like how i think about um the comedy of Bill Hicks. I liked it. Oh boy. I liked it in high school and then I grew out of it pretty yeah. quickly. I'm actually kind of proud of myself. <laughs> By the time I was 18, I kind of saw, Oh, this is a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And you and um, I've said the same about fight club, which yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if I'd say I'm, I come back around on, but I still have some respect for the way it was made. But, um, yeah, it's, I wonder if it's, you know, he's a filmmaker that, uh, you and I are kind of saying the same thing. I'm saying he's a gateway filmmaker. He's the first, when you see, one could say Inception or Interstellar or The Dark Knight, you see these movies and you feel like, I've, and some people who maybe haven't seen a lot of uh, Kubrick or any of these other filmmakers, they or see Fritz these. Lang. I mean. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Fritz Lang is like all over Nolan. <laughs> and so they, they've, you know, viewers who go and see these blockbuster films are now introduced to this thing. And so, I mean, I'm basically talking about high schoolers and college students and that sort of thing, people who've who've only been, not necessarily only been exposed, but have only demanded so much of themselves when it comes to film. And then they see this, and like so many, so many of the rest of us, something ignites, and they think, wow, this is pretty amazing. And you, I think you always have a certain degree of affection for what got you into it. And maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit too much. I mean, you and I are both kind of dismissive of Inception because I feel like, it could have been so much more than it was, but for some people, it's like the end-all, be-all of dreamscapes. But, I mean, we've seen movies that are dreamscapes that are so much more genuinely dreamlike If I that. ever dreamt about a van falling off a bridge for three fucking hours, I'd wake up and kill myself. <laughs> um, Anyway, um, that should be a lesson to the people writing you. Uh, they should incept your dreams with the dream of a van falling off a bridge <laughs> of three hours, and then they won't have to deal with your crap that's, anymore, David. That's right. Uh, but then the guy, uh, this guy, Benji, um, in a way that's very funny, he goes to list a bunch of other things that I like that he doesn't, uh, including Looney Tunes back in action. He specifically implores me to stop recommending that movie. He's factually <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> that's It's a great movie. Uh, he refuses to watch White Tiger or Ghost Tank now. <laughs> um, he said the Mountain Goats suck. He probably the did. Suck, heavy Metal sucks. Um, a bunch of stuff that sucks. And then one other thing that I want to... Um, well, no, you know, a couple and of you are, For the record, you are now reading his letter. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not reading it uh, out loud. Okay. Um, I'm paraphrasing and jumping around because <laughs> okay. the thing's long. Yeah. I'd, it would take me forever. Um, but 
so he well first he asked me not to read us on the air because he doesn't want us to have fun at his expense and i don't it's like dude we wouldn't we wouldn't do like i don't is think that so. the impression you have of us that we would like make fun of you well it's and not, that's the thing is my hope is that people take what we're doing right now is not making fun of him but he's bringing up i think some important questions in this case very specifically about you and maybe about him but and about nolan fans but that can be extrapolated to larger things which is you know are there any filmmakers or even specific films that we are very reactionary about and protective of yeah protect that's a great way of putting it protective of and if so why and for me i think i i think there are probably there are definitely movies that i will defend as though someone were insulting my wife uh, and I think it's because they're so personal to my development as a film fan and maybe maybe even as a person. I, talk, I mean, I, it's not to this extent, but I talked about if I kind of like a movie or if I feel like even if I don't love a movie, but I feel like enough people are misunderstanding it. Because mm-hmm. just last week we talked about men, women and children. Right. Which is a B minus of a movie. But so many people are being so mean about it. And in my opinion, <laughs> they're being so mean. Yeah. Being, Stop being so mean, you guys. A lot of people are being mean about it. Um, and in a way that I feel is misunderstanding the point of the movie, I feel more protective of it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's a good impulse. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I mean, <laughs> like, I'm, that's about positivity. I'm protective about Ang Lee's Hulk because I recognize that it's trying to do something that is unusual okay. and that people will uh, get angry about. But for me, it's also about, like I was saying earlier with Nolan, like the level the filmmakers at, like if someone's dissing on, uh, well, frankly, like Wes Anderson, who I love, I don't mind people taking shots at Wes Anderson because there's a lot to make fun of. And like, he's not going anywhere, yeah. <laughs> but if people make fun of, uh, Alain Rene, who just died, isn't making movies anymore, but when he was alive and making movies, people make fun of him. It's like, he doesn't really have like a big share of the marketplace. Like, is this really right. a target you want to pick here? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know what? I made a joke about Frederick Wiseman on Twitter today and I had that same, <laughs> I was like, maybe I should be, you know, speaking truth to power and not talking about the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not talking about what'd you Wiseman. say about him? I must've missed it. Um, I think my joke was that the difference between watching a Frederick Wiseman movie and being asleep is that I don't usually sleep for that long. <laughs> <laughs> So not a bad joke, apparently. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes, uh, <laughs> you know, humor humor trumps all. Um, one more thing that I want to mention. This is much more about, hey, watch this. Um, so I won't go into too much detail here. But he also got on my case for being, which, go, it, this, it hit a nerve, this. Because it goes back to something from years ago, Tyler, that you might remember. Um, uh, an iTunes review. Maybe the only iTunes review that's ever bothered me. Oh, okay. Um, because I usually don't care. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but someone accused me of being... A milk toast, Alan Combs, no, to my hardcore yeah. Sean no, Hannity? I can't remember the exact wording, but someone said I was a creep and I was a faux feminist. Huh. You know what I mean? Like, my, my feminism oh, yeah, yeah. was, like, kind of creepy and, like, disingenuous. You're just trying to get chicks, David. I know. <laughs> Apparently. Um Hey, ladies, this is what a feminist looks like. <laughs> so he said uh, – he, he, this hit a nerve because he said something about uh, – I do a show with Paul Goebel who is usually not uh, at all <laughs> reticent to express his uh, reactions to women's bodies. Or anything. <laughs> right. But specifically when, when Paul gets a little prurient on the show, I tend to get a little uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And I make that clear. Um, and that's not a judgment. Paul is my friend. I enjoy doing the show with him. It's not like I'm storming out in protest. Right. Because Paul liked uh, the girl from True Detective's breasts or whatever. Like, uh, I just, it just makes me uncomfortable, that kind of 
objectification. It's not how I was raised. It's not how I tend to think. And so one could make the argument, though, not that I'm in the habit of defending Paul Goebel's comments <laughs> uh-huh. on women's boobs, but uh, one could say that even classifying it as objectification is something that is uh, could be considered a judgment. Uh, I, I guess, but, uh, you know, if I don't know, I mean, sometimes if someone is purposely putting themselves up to be objectified in a way in which they're in control of their own body and in control of the message, you know, um, if it's, I don't know, a a photo shoot or something that they're in control of, I have no problem with saying that that's beautiful or that's sexy or or whatever. But when Alexandra Daddario or whatever in True Detective is trying to be a good actress, right? (laughs) Trying to be the character and all that Paul talks about is her naked breasts it uh it it, it is, makes me uncomfortable but at least in that first scene i think it is supposed to be a pretty sexy scene it's not like she's getting like raped or anything no but it's not but it's not devoid of the context of the drama no but i guess and i'm I, saying so that like I, I feel like that's it, it's in it's it's wrong because i guess when you're talking specifically about how good her breasts looked you're talking about alexander daddario you're not talking about the character she's playing or the scene ah but you are yeah is the, is there a difference um no i guess i would just say that i think there's a hesitance to talk about uh, amongst critics to admit that they get turned on by movies which no, i think is a perfectly if, valid response if to if a certain movie movies. is sexy but i don't think i don't think the scene you're talking about uh, where Alexander Daddario, and I don't know why I picked a TV <laughs> thing, and now I picked the woman whose name is who's eighteen <laughs> so long. Um, that scene, I don't think that's supposed to be a steamy sex scene. It's more about what a creep Woody Harrelson's character is. I don't really remember to be honest. I um, just remember it being more positive the first time, and much less so the second time. Uh, but in any case, I mean, he's being uh, unfaithful, and yeah, know, and that's to me that's more the point of the the show of the of that scene whereas yeah if it's a sexy movie if like pedro almodovar has a sex scene right. in his movie and is intentionally making it to be that sort of thing oh to get back to tv um uh what's the show called outlander outlander has uh not as many as maybe people were expecting from the show but it has numerous like steamy sex scenes that i have no problem saying are really hot (laughs) because that's what they're and that's the kind of show it is and i feel like it's in a way that's respectful and not uh objectifying or degrading or demeaning to anyone uh it's the kind of mutually enjoyable sex that i would like to think that i practice in my real (laughs) life and therefore like to see reflected um but uh you've never made sex sound more hot (laughs) than right there um so but anyway all that is to say that um yeah, if I get a little skeeved out by uh, certain things, it's me. It's I'm not that's not a judgment, you know. And if I and it, to, to bring it full circle, if I'm smug and dismissive about Interstellar, that's also me. And it's also taken with the understanding that we're all adults listening to this. Although there might be some people who aren't adults listening to this, but it's true. We're all smart listening to this. There you go. And you understand that when you hit play on this, you're agreeing to listen to my opinion. Yeah. Right. So I, you know, I if I, I if I, you know, I don't feel like I have to qualify everything with, uh, in my opinion, and I respect other people's opinions all the time. You know, like I can say, men, women, and children is a B minus of a movie, and you can all all understand that's not a fact that I'm trying to get across <laughs> to you. That is my opinion. Although Looney, Looney Tunes back in action being a good film is a fact, yeah, no doubt. About <laughs> um, but the uh, yeah, as somebody who can take almost anything as a slight. Um, I will say that it's when people have opinions, 
unless they're unless they're very overtly saying you're dumb if you think the opposite, which most people don't say. Them saying, which I have skirted the edge of saying, by the way, <laughs> it happens. It ha- it's 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 easy to fall into that. Uh, but if somebody's not saying that, if somebody's just saying this wasn't for me, and I th- and here are my reasons for why I think it's bad, and they give a lot of reasons, you can have your reasons for thinking it's good. That's fine. The person is not saying those reasons at you. They're not judging you for liking the thing. Uh, they're not calling you dumb for liking something they think is dumb. Yeah. You know, you and I regularly talk about how we know people that are i know people that are much smarter than i am that that like incredibly stupid movies them liking the stupid movies does not mean right that uh well, that they're dumber than i am we just did a bp movie journal episode where i talked about how much i loved brad ratner's hercules yeah and i am unapologetic <laughs> about that yeah uh but uh that brings me to something else and then we'll get to the actual episode okay um i don't take it upon myself when we hit record on these podcasts to be in the role of uh, an authority figure on anything or an educator or whatever, I feel like we're having a part of the conversation and this is a completely democratic uh, um, uh, medium, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, podcasting um, in the internet. As long as, you know, as long as we can maintain net neutrality, that's another conversation. Um, Yeah. I, I think of all the listeners as being on the same level that I'm on. And so if I say something a bit incendiary, it's just a part of the conversation and it's a part of the fun. And if you want to get on the, uh, you know, send me an email or a, or a tweet or comment on the, on the uh, handwritten on, letter, uh, handwritten letter, comment on the website, there are plenty of ways to continue the conversation, uh, with me. And, um, I, I don't have any, I don't have any problem with anyone disagreeing with me and i i really don't think you're dumb for disagreeing even though i might take that opinion or take that air sometimes so uh although again i haven't said i'm sorry at don't all like looney tunes back in action <laughs> right. um i haven't said i'm sorry at all but if yeah if i have been overly dismissive or if i have made anyone feel dumb then i am sorry I, i'm playing it up a little bit hmm hang on a second and i, and I respect i respect you that's what i'm saying you obviously have a good taste. I have, listen to the show. I have been put in the position of defending you in the past, and I will do it again. Uh, if you're a new listener and you are new to David's tone or mine or Scott's or anybody, uh, certainly Paul Goebbels, <laughs> um, then uh, then I, I understand that a little bit. But like, you know, uh, as somebody again, I get very I get offended easily, and I take uh, things personally, uh, including, for example, in my own marriage. And uh, there are times when Jen and I have had the conversation where Jen's like, you need to actually trust me. You need to trust that you've known me for a while. <laughs> and I probably don't mean that. And like use use your history with me to uh-huh. get you through this, knowing how you are, you know, and that's but that's the flip side is is that sometimes she will say something that is actually frustrating to me uh-huh. and vice versa. Um, and so what I'll say is like, if you've been a listener for a while and David, uh, kind of has this posturing thing as I do, as anybody does at some point, it's easy for David and I, who've known each other for a number of years, uh, can, it's easy for us to wind each other up sometimes. But my (laughs) hope is that you look at the way that we, the way we talk about movies in other contexts and the way that we write about movies and our, and hopefully our general approach to movies. And you think, okay, that one's not at me. Right. And I might be a little bit frustrated and maybe I'll send him an email and say, you probably could have phrased that better. That's fine. Uh, but come on. 
And also cut us some cut yeah. us a little bit of slack. Also, we love you. Scott loves you too. I mean, insofar David does not speak for me. Insofar as Scott can love anything, <laughs> that's true. I feel like we should talk about. It's been longer Scott, than this meant to be. Scott looked like he had something to say. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, you know, the occasional insult is a sign of respect. Um, okay. Yeah. And just as I insult my friends about their tastes, you know, the listener can take it every now and again. I listen to podcasts that insult me accidentally, and that's just a sign of respect. Yeah, and you hang out with people like myself who yeah. insult you very overtly. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right, we should move on. Indeed. Um, do we have any more uh, bills to pay? We sure do. Here we go. <laughs> do you think the sponsors like it when I talk about it like that? This Uh-oh. one, I'm sure, is fine. Are they going to send me a breakup letter? <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll hear, uh, as I say this uh, sponsorship, you'll understand why they have no room to judge anybody for anything. <laughs> this episode is also brought to you by the Double Feature Podcast. Once again, <laughs> it is Killapalooza Week on Double Feature, with the host discussing the Puppet Master film series. That's right, all ten movies, including really? Puppet Master 2, His Unholy Creation, Puppet Master 7, Retro Puppet Master, and of course, Puppet Master 9, Axis of Evil. To find out more about this ridiculous film series, just click on the ad at BattleshipPretension.com. That ad involved a lot of me editorializing. Oh. I wrote that out. Um, okay. Have you seen any Puppet Master movies? No. Scott? No. I wonder how many, if any of them, use the song Master of Puppets by Metallica. <laughs> I'd better say all of them. I hope they do. I hope Metallica <laughs> gave them the rights, like in perpetuity. Just, uh, you could <laughs> put this in every scene. Well, um, as, we, as we know, Metallica is always really generous with their music. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's funny. Um, uh, you can listen to Metallica's music um, using tweakedaudio.com earbuds. That's how I listen to it. That's literally. First, download it from LimeWire and then, <laughs> and then listen to it. With uh, I was literally listening to Metallica at work today with my tweaked, uh, tweakedaudio.com uh, earbuds. They're professional quality earbuds. They also look great. Uh, and they're a low, low price. And if you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, you get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. It's tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Um, Scott, what'd you, what'd you see at AFI Fest? Oh, not much. <laughs> <Okay>. Um, no. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess wrap this up. Yeah, that's I mean, we've basically done a whole episode already. <laughs> you have any more stuff you want to quote from that letter? <laughs> Um, I will say that as with last year, there were some disappointments as far as what they showed or as actually what they didn't show. Um, a few movies that we were all really expecting to show at IFest. Um, most notably, oh, there go my notes. Um, most notably, <laughs> Jean-Luc Godard's uh, Goodbye to Language, which is finally coming out in Los Angeles in January. So if any local listeners. Oh, where is it going to be? Uh, at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica for a week. Thank God. I love that place, actually. Yeah, it's, I, I, I don't, don't get there to, very often. Yeah, I don't go to Santa Monica very so often. So far west. But I do love the Arrow. I've yeah. seen so much great stuff there. Yeah. Um, so if any Los Angeles area listeners have been excited to see that, there's been a campaign recently to get to play there, and it's finally end of January. we got a ways to go. But um, So aside from like that and Hard to Be a God, uh, Pigeon Sat on the Branch Reflecting on Existence, if I did show a lot of good stuff this year, and some of the stuff really took me by surprise, and I was really happy at the number of times that I expected nothing from movie and got a whole lot out of it. One that I wasn't expecting much from from the director, but a lot from it being the world premiere and the opening night of AFI Fest was J.C. Chander's A Most Violent Year. Now, I don't know what you guys thought of his first two movies, Margin Call and All's Lost. I did not see Margin Call, but I really, really liked All is Lost. Really? I really liked I, Margin Call, but I did not see All is Lost. <laughs> I would say I, I fell short of loving All is Lost, but I liked it a lot. 
I saw both and thought they were pretty mediocre. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought Margin Call was kind of a writer's film that he's kind of under-directed and all is lost with the exact opposite problem is really well-directed, but really underwritten. And not just in the like conceit of the movie where there's very little dialogue. I just thought it was kind of poorly conceived. Um, I feel but, like there could have been less dialogue, actually. Yeah, when it gets to the voiceover part. Uh, just in general, I, I like we talk, you know, we're off on a tangent already. <laughs> but I already talked last year about how you'd think all is lost to be an acting showcase for Robert Redford. But it's so, as you said, like over-directed that I do kind of feel like almost anyone could have been like, you could have had a non-actor in that part and it would have been essentially the same movie. Yeah, maybe. Um, anyway, we're off. Let's talk about a most violent year. Um, yeah, I thought uh, it was, which the, is a most awesome title, by the way it is. Um, but it's not a most wanted man and you must keep the two separate. <laughs> um, I thought it was a real step up for him. Uh, he really brought the talents of both the first two films together created a great screenplay with really well-drawn characters. And the thing I touched on my review um, that I thought really was the key lesson in, you know, kind of learning how to direct films is letting the space between the words define the movie as much as the words themselves. You know, Margin Call is a very talky movie. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of like moments of quiet. And I thought that the moments of quiet really sold uh, the weight of the most violent year. Um, It deals with the the most banal subject in the world is a heating oil company in the early 1980s in New York. But he uses that to get at kind of the American dream, capitalism, and all the stuff that he's been dealing with, especially Margin Call. Mm-hmm. Um, but he deals with it, I think, in a so much more interesting way. And it's also just a super awesome movie. There's great acting scenes. There's an amazing chase scene that, like, ends with Oscar Isaac, like, chasing guys seemingly in the bowels of hell through the New York subway system. <laughs> but it's just so well... Uh, directed and so well wrought um it's interesting to think that because i've only seen one of his films but it's interesting based on what you're saying to think of to think that you're watching the evolution of a filmmaker that you see or a writer director specifically because first you see all right he clearly put a lot of time into the margin call screenplay but maybe didn't have the confidence as a director maybe tried to overcorrect when it came to all is lost and now has sort of found right where he needs to be with a most violent year. That's it's to me, it's fun to watch that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's kind of the basis of autourism, which I'm watch out. Definitely an autourist. Um, it also, uh, a side note, you know, every now and then you had enough movies, you hear people talking, some people you can shush, some people you can't, uh, this, my favorite comment of anything I overheard during a five is at one point, Oscar Isaac has come up with, uh, $1.5 million. And the guy in front of me just goes, Oh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I just hate people so much. Um, can I real quick say my favorite comment I've ever heard in a movie theater? Yeah. Uh, when I was, when uh, my now wife and I, then girlfriend, were uh, watching The Hangover, the first one, 2009. There's a scene they're looking for, I can't remember what they're looking for, uh, something in their their suite at the hotel. And Zach Galifianakis reaches into a couch cushion, pulls out a slice of pizza, and takes a bite out of it. <laughs> And there's a joke. Oh, did you just eat right. couch pizza, 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 whatever. The woman next to me turned to her friend next to her and said, hey, do you want to get pizza after this? <laughs> <laughs> pizza companies take note. Couch yeah. pizza sells pizza. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, now, we shouldn't move on, but I we should have uh, figured out this attack plan. So there's only one thing that played at, at uh, AFI Fest that Tyler's seen, right? Uh, well, I mean... No, two. Oh, yeah, you There's have another two. one. Okay. One I saw as a function of AFI Fest and then one not. And then I have a handful of things that I have that played there that I've seen. I only saw one thing at the festival, but 
some distributors do press screenings leading up to this. There's a yeah, couple yeah. things that I've seen, and uh, at least one thing that I've seen since. So I'm not sure if we should go roundtable, because you've got way more than I do. I'm not sure how we should uh, bounce this around. Anybody have any ideas? Uh, I've seen three, by the way. Oh, you've seen it three? Just, oh, yeah. It just occurred to me. Um, okay. Well, at least well, that's two of them I've seen, so we can get to them as I get to them. If you know when they played, we can go chronologically or... Um, I don't know. I, I only know the one that I actually saw there at the festival. Um, well, let's I know just, you saw one on Friday night, so let's yeah. move into Friday. I saw, I'll talk about what I saw. Oh, you go first. You can go okay. into what you saw. Um, the only movie I actually saw that Friday night was this movie called Blind, which was directed by Eskel Vogt, I think. It's, uh, oh, what country is he from? Some one of those Scandinavian countries. Um, but he was, this was his directorial debut. He was the co-writer on two films, uh, Repast and also August 31st, which are both really great movies, um, but take a very realist approach to kind of these like drug addled people struggling in their mid-20s. Um, and this is very different. It's about a woman who's been recently blinded and she's holed up in her apartment. And it's more about the fantasies she has about what her husband does while he's away, um, about other people in the city. And it kind of slowly teases out that this is even a fantasy at all until eventually really bringing it back to her. And it's a really great way to express kind of isolation and loneliness without it just being a movie set in a, purely in an apartment. Norway. Thank you. It was Norway. <laughs> <laughs> the answer was Norway. <laughs> um, the other movie that played that night that I saw before the festival is uh, Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne's latest movie, Two Days, One Night, which is amazing and one of the best movies I've seen all year. Uh, Marion Cotillard in that plays a woman recovering from a really rough bout of depression who has to convince her co-workers at this factory. They recently took a vote to either keep her on or to get their year-end bonuses. And they voted for the bonuses. And she's gotten a weekend that the boss gave her to convince the people to change their minds. Hmm. And so it's about her going from person to person. So it has this really tight, rigid structure, but not the kind of structure you usually see in a movie. Um, And it's really just interesting to see her force. She's still recovering from depression. So she's really like almost on the verge of crying the entire time as she approaches each a coworker asking them for a job back essentially. And the reasons they all give for one way or the other are like totally realistic. You know, if first you hear the scenario, you're like who would vote against this woman having her job? But then you realize like these aren't rich people, you know, they need to, yeah. they're counting on this bonus. One um, guy, pr- you know, promised his family he was going to put in a swimming pool at Christmas time. You know, he needs <laughs> that bonus. You can't go back on a swimming pool, especially at Christmas. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's an amazing movie. It's coming out the year, end of the year through IFC. It sounds great. Yeah. Oh, oh, should I go? Yeah, do it. Um, so I saw, I'm trying to think. Okay, uh, Golden Bear winner, Black Coal Thin Ice, mm-hmm. uh, directed by, I'm going to mess this up, Yinan Diao. It's a Chinese film. Um, I talked about it on the movie journal last week. I, I should stop referencing that. They're separate shows. They there's, sure are. There's going to be overlap. Okay. Um, and uh, I was definitely curious because it won the Golden Bear, and that's a, uh, you know, speaks to a movie's <laughs> quality uh it, but i don't it, it seemed to never really lift off for me it's got a great premise uh basically uh, a cop um uh, uh so at the beginning of the film uh, a dismembered body is found um and one of the detectives in fact four detectives go to follow up on a lead and the guy they go to follow up on ends up shooting and killing two of the detectives and shooting our guy, the protagonist, before being shot and killed by the protagonist. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they got their man. He's dead, whatever. Uh, cuts to five years. It jumps five years. Um, having been wounded, he has since left left the police force. He's now working as a security guard. Um, and he finds out through the other surviving detective who's still in the police force that the husband of the 
guy who they found who the dead body the dismembered dead body um to in the intervening five years two more men who have been tied to her in some way have turned up dead and so this guy now becomes obsessed with you know i killed the wrong guy this woman is a murderer and he sort of he becomes literally obsessed and starts stalking her and it goes on from there and it gets a little bit uh weirder and weirder but in a way that it's uh it's almost like like by the end i feel like this is a movie that wants me to spend a lot of time thinking about what really happened here and what does this all mean but i have a sneaking suspicion that it doesn't actually mean that much it's just sort of um deliberately deliberately opaque um and there's a lot of great sequences um including the final sequence um uh which i really liked and there's a, a chase sequence across ice where one guy's on foot and the guy he's chasing is on ice skates um i love that it's really that cool awesome. <laughs> yeah uh but it, overall it was just a little bit um hard to follow in a way that feel, felt like it didn't mean anything um and it was also hard to follow in the sense that it takes place in the dead of winter and everyone's wearing apparently like the exact same bulky coat <laughs> so there are scenes where i'm like who who was that guy who just killed that guy? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Did you, ask least... that? Did you ask that to the theater? That would have been great. <laughs> I should have. They should have at least worn different colored coats. Yeah. Like have one guy in bright pink. and you know. Oh, like a Dick Tracy approach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that. <laughs> so that's Black Coal Thin Ice. I wish I could say nicer things about it. No, well, can't win them all. Um, so then uh, moving into Saturday, the first movie I saw was uh, Melanie Laurent, the actress's her second feature film. I didn't even know she had any feature films, and now she's already on her second um, it's a movie called Breathe. Uh, it's a coming-of-age story about, uh, I said in the, my review, the log line would be, an average high school student gets wrapped up in the world of uh, an outlandish, you know, sex maniac. <laughs> She's not a sex maniac. That was the wrong thing to say. Um, but, you know, someone who's more worldly and experienced than her. Um, but it's a really strong coming-of-age story that uses the best of melodrama as like a heightened emotion to address kind of uh, the typical emotions we all feel about it, rejection, abandonment, you know, as their story goes on, especially in teenage years. Oh yeah, exactly. Like, I think Brick does it great in mm. terms of like taking a totally unrealistic story, but keeping the real emotion there. Um, so yeah, as their friendship goes on, you know, slight, uh, friction occurs and kind of sends them in opposite directions. And the extent to which it takes that is definitely unrealistic, but still it keeps it very strong emotionally. I was really impressed Usually when actors turn to directors, it's just for the acting, but she really found a cinematic way to tell the story. So I was really impressed with that. Uh, the second movie I saw was called Get the Trial Vivian Amsalem, which has a great premise. It's about a woman in Israel uh, who's trying to get a divorce. But it, the entire process, because the court defers so much to the man, it ends up taking her five years. Um, so it goes through that entire process of like, Sometimes three months later, they'll just show up at the courthouse and the man just won't have shown up. So they're like, well, there's nothing we can do for you today. Um, so it really pokes fun at kind of the Israeli legal system and just the cultural values surrounding marriage about like, once you've made a commitment, that's it. And all our friends are like, well, he doesn't beat you. You know, what's the problem here? But they all admit that they're not really meant to be together. Um, so it does a very good investigation in that, but it ultimately kind of plays to the audience's sympathies. It kind of takes for granted they're going to side with her and doesn't really like give enough shade to the other side so that it kind of becomes flattering to the audience in a way that actually <laughs> repels me hmm. ironically enough. I don't know if you guys have had that experience before. Um, 
So yeah, it's a solid enough film. It'll be released in the spring. I'd recommend people check it out if the premise sounds interesting. And what's that one called again? Uh, Get the Trial of Vivian Amsalem. Okay. Uh, and then I didn't see anything else until very late at night when I saw Inherent Vice, which I know, David, you caught up with later. Uh, yeah, let's talk about Inherent Vice. Oh, I could talk about it all night. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. Because, yeah, yeah. Um, not everyone has seen it, nor will get to see it for a couple weeks, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's so, so good. I was I went in a little bit skeptical, um, or not skeptical is not the right word. I was a little hesitant going in because um, I'm such a big fan of There Will Be Blood and The Master um that you know this huge rambling period comedy thing felt closer to boogie nights which is some a film that i or i it, it didn't feel like the impression i got was going to be close it was going to be closer to boogie nights which is not a film that i love um but uh i don't know that i would compare this having seen it now i don't know that i can make a direct comparison to any of his previous work i mean it still feels like him yeah but it doesn't feel like oh this is a paul thomas anderson film in the vein of blank it, it still it feels I think like it a, has some commonalities with the master especially in the way the music's used and i mean it's the same composer uh johnny greenwood right um but in also just the shots he's setting up it's the same aspect ratio so there's some like visual corollaries there between the two but it's definitely like on his whole different uh tempo and i should admit that i've loved every paul thomas anderson movie and I have a nostalgia for 70s California, and I like most stoner movies. So this movie was really playing to my interests. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying about the framing being similar to The Master, but it doesn't have the same franticness. The, the Master doesn't have the franticness that this well, no. achieves. In part um, because there's more plot to this movie. Uh, but but also the plot is not, I don't think, very important. Oh, no. In, and, I, mean, I don't know what happened. I mean, when I, I saw don't know it, that I care. I've seen it twice now. Uh, and when I saw it at AFI Fest, it was at 1030 at night. And it's a two and a half hour movie. And since it's a gala, they're not going to start until 11. And so oh, right. I was extremely tired throughout the whole movie and couldn't follow it at all. And was just so delighted by everything that was happening nonetheless. <laughs> and then it was kind of disappointed the second time that it all kind of makes sense. Um, Does it make sense the second time? Yeah, much more so. Okay. I, um, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't care, but I, yeah, I, I will, yeah. but that's, I, I will see this movie over and over again. Oh, it, it's, it's so funny. And yes, that's the main reason. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's hilarious. It's, I don't think I've, and I've like, I love punch drunk love, but yeah. I don't think I've laughed like this at a Paul Thomas Anderson movie before. Well, because he's with this in the master, he's been willing to get more wild than he has in the past and like leave more things over improv and chance. Whereas like, yeah, I, I know you I, like I'm seeing the comparisons you're making to the master, but I feel like in, in the master, that sort of thing you're talking about is seasoning and here it's almost the main course. Oh, I agree. But I'm just saying like, that's a connection where it's right. like his earlier movies were very rigid and very, formalist and very determined um there's right. a looseness to these two that i really respond to yeah um i don't know what else to say because there's stuff that i i know it gets tempting to start quoting bits from the movie but that'd be <laughs> right. unfair to listen or to maybe Tyler. because i i tend hey, to, fellas what are you talking about <laughs> i like to remain um you know spoiler free i guess I, I don't like to think of it like that but i try not to know too much about it going in yeah so there are people in the cast that i had no idea were oh, in really it. Um, and I was delighted to see a number of them. I, I talked on the movie journal. I stopped referencing this. <laughs> uh, but I talked about um, how good Josh Brolin is, how good Eric Roberts is, and how good Martin Donovan is in his one scene. Um, there are other people. A personal uh, favorite of mine, Jenna Malone, is in the movie. Yeah, she's really good. Uh, and she is really good. But there, yeah, there are other actors that I didn't know uh, were going to show up. And when they did, I was uh, delighted. 
Well, and I think Walking Phoenix is great too. I mean, he's in like every frame of the movie practically. Yeah. He just holds it together while still being like completely weird and out there. And yeah. it's kind of the perfect role for his public persona. But <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I need to, I need to think about it more cause I'm going to have to review it at some point in the next couple of weeks. Um, but it is definitely, I, I envy you having seen it twice because it, uh, I'm still having a hard time. It's been almost a week now and I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around the whole thing at once. Yeah. Um, well, frankly, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so I'll have to figure out something to write about it. Uh, any thoughts, Tyler? <laughs> I'm excited to see it. <laughs> okay. You should be. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is currently occupying the number two spot on my 2014 list. The number one film is also, also played at AFI, but I, I don't know if you saw it or not. So, uh, Well, now I think you should just talk about it because you're already teasing it. Okay. Uh, my favorite film of 2014 so far, and I still have a lot of catching up to do. Um, I forget how to pronounce the actor's name, uh, the director's name. It's a Russian film called Leviathan. It's oh, yeah. also I'm about two and a half hours that. long. You didn't see it? No. Which is, I mean, it is a remake of that film with Peter Weller and Ernie Hudson <laughs> no. and Daniel Stern, right? Um, no, it's a remake of the uh, experimental documentary from two <laughs> okay. years ago about the fishing boat. Which okay. part, did you guys see that? Yeah, it's no. awesome. amazing. Yeah, it's so good. It's amazing. <laughs> there are two amazing films called Leviathan <laughs> that came out within 24 months of each other. Uh, have you seen, you haven't seen this documentary? Well, okay, hang on. There are three amazing <laughs> films called Leviathan. No, I'm saying in a two short period happened of time. to come right, out. Okay. Uh, I never saw the the Peter Weller one. Did you oh, it's Peter uh, awful. Okay. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, but, uh, you know, when you were talking about um, Get, I think, was that yeah. the one you were talking about? The, the Israeli, the divorce one? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking about a separation. And the early section of Leviathan, again, it's very long. It's also two and a half hours long. Um, or 220, whatever. The early, early sections of Leviathan also really remind me of a separation in the sense that so the premise of leviathan is that there's this guy in the small town uh in russia and he has a house that he's built on the river and um he lives with his son he's a widower but he's remarried um and he lives with his son from his first marriage and his wife uh and he has a nice life and there's a the mayor of the town the small town he lives in wants to what's the word um like eminent domain like grab his land and knock it down and make it public property for um uh there's some speculation as to whether he's just going to build a vacation home for himself because it's right on the river uh, eventually you do find out why he wants the land but it's not important at the beginning at least it is much very important later on um but the early sections uh the 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 sort of that's that's already happened by the time it starts what what kicks it off is that the main guy um i forget all the actors and characters names um his friend from the from his army days who lives in moscow and is now a lawyer comes out to the small town to help him fight for his home and his land uh and that section felt like a separation to me in the sense that by following its own very very tight and very believable logic it takes on the feeling of a thriller um even though everything that's happening is not outlandish or you know or overheated it all seems like it could really happen um it's just a one thing after another uh thing that feels like a thriller but it goes on from there to be more of a tragedy it's um not a secret that it's inspired by the story of job so um things don't go well for the main guy uh i guess that's a spoiler for people who don't know what job is about (laughs) um but uh it's the the film is so. I, I was guess, wondering where it was getting its title, but uh, that is where the the word comes from, right? Um, and uh, I, I guess when we uh, 
we should do an uh, an episode, Tyler. Someday we just did. What do we mean by the word independent? We should do an episode on what do we mean by epic? Mm. Because so often epic seems to take place over a long period of time. Um, this takes place over maybe a month or two, mm-hmm. but I would say that Leviathan feels like an epic, not only in because it encompasses so many things and so much of the uh, interior life of of these characters, but also just the way that it's shot is enormous. I would say, I mean, it, I, I you know, I think people tend to think, um, of mov- when when you say you got to see a movie on the big screen, they t- tend to think of movies like Interstellar that are big, you know, vistas or space vistas or whatever, and special effects and stuff. Leviathan is not that; it's a domestic drama, um, in uh, large part, but it demands to be seen in a theater because it's so beautiful and it has this feeling of enormity, um, to it. Uh, in in that, um, everything seems so much bigger than this guy, be it whales there are actual whales in the movie it's not just a clever title um there are whales and whale skeletons at least one oh. whale skeleton uh but that's on the poster people can have seen that i'm uh, i guess if you've looked at that um there but there's machinery you know bulldozers there's um uh, it's i, I don't want to go too much into detail about it i still have to write a review um but uh it's it, it's it's the type of film that i like in terms of plotting to go back to what I was saying before in that um, it well, we were talking about another movie recently, Tyler, where I compared it to breaking bad and I can't remember what movie that was. monkey shines. <laughs> it wasn't monkey shines, <laughs> but um, the idea that everything that happens has consequences and the film is not willing to cut corners or be contrived in what those consequences are. And so uh, yeah, I don't remember what we were talking, but about. you remember me saying, yeah, that, yeah. Right? Um, and this, that that's what happens in Leviathan. Everything sort of follows its own logic, and so it's incredibly tragic. And multiple thing, multiple awful things happen to this man, but in a way where it doesn't feel like melodrama. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like, oh, now I got to deal with this fucking thing. Like everything stems from the last thing. Yeah, uh, and it's um, very moving and very sad, uh, but also um, awe inspiring. Um, so that's Leviathan, but I want to bring up one thing about Leviathan that's also true of Inherent Vice. Um, that's just a tiny little thing, but that I really like. I like that. Um, not that these, neither of these is like a small film, but not a spectacle film. They both have in one or more scenes use of um, CG. I guess yeah. Inherent Vice has. Um, I mean, there's. In a flashback, you see him go to an empty lot, yeah. and then when you revisit the empty lot later, it's no longer empty. There's an enormous building there, <laughs> and so you have, you have to know, okay, that building and just the logistics of that building. <laughs> it's not real. It's put there by CG. You but planned teams, this movie ten years ago, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then um, Leviathan has it too uh, at, near the end. A, a building, a building is essentially the same thing. You know, like well, obviously that that enormous thing wasn't built just for the movie. Uh, I love that CG has come to a place where it can be used for this sort of thing. And it's not just, you know, Ivan Reitman's evolution. <laughs> what the hell are you All talking about? Well, you, I, okay, you talked what's about the worst. You're the only person in the world that remembers <laughs> that movie, including Ivan Reitman. I remember it as my least favorite CG movie of all time. Possibly. It's awful. It looks awful. It serves no purpose. It's an, that's an ugly, ugly movie. You, oh. when you think of bad cg what movie do you think of uh 
I don't mean bad like, oh, that doesn't look real at all. I mean bad like l- lazy and used in instead of making an actual movie. Uh, Godzilla 98. Okay. What would uh, you say? I can't think of one offhand. I tend to forget them pretty Is it because fast. you can't think of one better than Ivan Reitman's evolution? That's it. <laughs> you know what? Some of this. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Much as I do have a certain degree of appreciation for the original Mortal Kombat, the CG in that is <laughs> I never half-baked. Um, but you know what? That's a, I mean, Forrest Gump won Best Visual Effects yeah. uh, for effects that you're never supposed to realize. Right, I mean, like still, removing Lieutenant Dan's legs, yeah. like are not you're not supposed to realize. But that's this. still an enormous film. But I you also, so, yeah. I think you are supposed to realize that. I mean, everyone knows that Gary Sinise has legs. Right. Like, nobody's looking at that and going, no, oh, that guy really made a sacrifice for this the, movie. The better example. No, no, you're just, you're just thinking of the character and you're thinking of the scene. You, I, I don't know of anybody that looks at that and thinks, how'd they do that? Like, it's, it's not meant to say, hey, look at this. Um, I don't know. I feel like that and the inserting him into old footage, I think he's really calling attention to the process. Which is why there. I say the better example is Castaway, which if you watch yeah, the special features sure. on Castaway, yeah. there's so much effects work that you never would think is there. Yeah. Um, mostly in terms of removing things to make the, to make the, the island feel more, not just yeah. the removing, because <laughs> the part when he goes up to where he's like going to kill himself or whatever <laughs> yeah. is literally in a parking lot. Yeah. Like literally they built, they built just the top, like a styrofoam rock for just the very top of the mountain. Yeah. And it's Tom Hanks in a parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, questioning uh, his life and I'm, i feel so alone yeah um but anyway, but still those are big like big money movies yeah i'm talking about like inherent vice is not a you know uh uh what's it's not a it's not a tiny little low budget indie yeah, it's probably like, like 40 million range yeah it, and uh, with a huge cast yeah and uh to be able to use um to be able to use cgi in ways other than just empty spectacle mm-hmm and I know it's I mean, obviously Paul Thomas Anderson isn't the first to do it, but I feel like we're seeing it more this year in smaller movies. Mm-hmm. Like, um, did either of you see Only Only Lovers Left Alive? Yeah, yes. There's the uh, coyotes in the parking garage or oh, whatever yeah. that like those are CG, hmm. uh, and the fact that Jim Jarmusch made a movie with CG <laughs> in it is fantastic to me. I love it. Yeah, that's it's weird. <laughs> it's weird to think about, but I guess if I mean he did make a he put it in his vampire movies, so I guess that makes right. sense. Right. Okay, okay what else we got? Move on. We go. Um, yeah, moving We're making very bad time. <laughs> well, we can try to go fast. Um, as much as I said Inherent Vice was playing to uh, my pleasure points, uh, the first movie I saw on Sunday, Gueros, did so even more so because it's mixing uh, Jim Jarmusch, speaking of which, uh, the French New Wave and uh, Francis Ford Coppola's black and white movies into this very wonderful mix. It's about this uh, kid in Mexico who uh, is being too much trouble for his mother, and so she sends him to live with his older brother who's this like he's in college but his college is on strike and he says he's on strike from the strike so he's just kind of hanging out all day stealing electricity from his neighbors he's not really like the best influence but their relation the way the relationship builds is really well done and not like kind of exploitative of you know poor people in mexico it's very kind of self-referential and mocking. There's a scene where they go to a film premiere and make fun of essentially the kind of movie they're in. They're like, oh yeah, all these Mexican directors filming in black and white and grabbing people off the streets <laughs> when like that's the movie they're in. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's really imaginative. Isn't there a joke like that in Woody Allen's Celebrity? I've never seen it. Oh, well, the movie's in black and white and they okay. go to a movie premiere and the date is like, what is this movie we're seeing? And he's like, oh, it's this guy who, the type of guy who makes his movies in black and white. <laughs> anyway. I feel like jokes like that go a long way. Yeah. More um, people should do that. You think so? 
Oh, yeah. I tend to be bothered by those because it feels like somebody trying to inoculate themselves from criticism. Oh, I, I think I'm with you, actually. Maybe, but yeah. it works. For yeah. me. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, as I was saying, I think it gets really imaginative. By the time they get to the campus and exploring, like, the strike as a whole, and it's just really a well-built movie for such a small, I assume, small-budget movie. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't have distribution. I don't think the Kino Lorber uh, logo came up at the beginning, but I haven't found it anywhere on their website. So if you get a chance to see it, do see it. Uh, the second movie I saw was called Tales of the Grim Sleeper. It's a documentary that will be released through HBO. Um, it's about this. Have you guys heard of the Grim Sleeper murders? Yeah. I had not heard of it at all. It sounds um, familiar. Uh, it's in Los Angeles. Yeah. It's a okay. serial killer who mostly worked, like kind of came in the prom- prominence, um, <laughs> became known in the 1980s um, and then just kind of kept killing people essentially for like 20 years. And the police didn't really investigate it because mostly killing black hookers. And in fact, they get in this movie, the police were like, uh, like kind of on the guy's side, you know, once it became clear, there's this one guy who's doing it. They just don't have enough of a case to go against him. Even if they wanted to, they would like high five his son in the streets even. (laughs) So this, it explores more the relationship between the police and the poor Los Angeles community than the motives of the serial killer. I went and think it was going to be a serial killer doc and was so amazed by how much uh, cultural tension they ended up exploring. And it's made by this uh, very proper Englishman. So it has kind of a entertainment value uh, tension of him just like Wait, going around the streets interviewing the black hookers. Nick Broomfield. Do you, I don't think of him as a proper person at all. He makes trashy movies. I've never I've seen any that of That name movies. sounds very familiar. Okay, he's no... Well, his best... I haven't seen this. This could be his best. His best movies so far are the two he made on Eileen Wuornos, another serial killer Okay, the, from Monster. Yeah. But he also made Kurt and Courtney, which is garbage. Okay. And he made Biggie and Tupac, which is the same level of tabloid garbage. Okay. Well, uh, he comes across much better here than uh, the impression you've got him. I don't know. Yeah, maybe he's grown up a little bit. I mean, I, I that's I felt my impression like, from reading reviews. People said he inserted too much of himself in the past documentaries. Yeah, and he's just too sensationalistic. I feel like his Eileen Wuornos documentaries are good, almost despite him, because she's such a fascinating person. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I didn't get this feeling. This was sensational at all. He, okay, good. He seemed like very kind of like the stereotypical English documentarian almost. Okay. To me, so well, um, you can skip Kurt and Courtney and Biggie and Tupac. I probably I don't watch that many documentaries anyway, <laughs> so I probably wouldn't see them. Um, yeah, I've heard that about you. Yeah, we could talk about that another time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler's making a face. Um, <laughs> we want to talk. I want to talk about it now. No, it's all right. It's fine. We don't have time. We yeah. Um. Anyway, so I'd encourage people to check it out. It will be airing on HBO. Uh, and then the movie I saw after that was Mike Lee's latest Mr. Turner, which Tyler also saw. I did see it. Oh, boy. And which Yay. I was supposed to see. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, so, okay. I really liked it. It is a film that, is, that I found to be, unlike a lot of other Mike Lee, I found it to be emotionally impenetrable. Yeah. Um, but that's all right. Topsy Turvy was a little bit, too. Um Except that there was that was more uh, emotionally accessible than this. So it was a film that really, and that's one of the reasons, among others, is that I think Timothy Spall will not be not be nominated for an Oscar, uh, though I think he's wonderful in it. I think it's not the type of performance that they will that the Academy will embrace. But the British branch is strong, and they always vote for their own. I guess so. But that, but there is a British actor. Uh, I forget his name. Who's playing? Who plays Martin Luther King? Oh, that's right. They'll go with I him. I always forget he's British. Yeah, he's one of their own. They'll go with him. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, it took me – I mean, it, this is a movie that frustrated me. I mean, it it angered me 
while I was watching it because I kept asking myself, why am I watching this? Why are you making this movie this way? And I love Mike Lee. Um, but as the film came to a close and as I was uh, walking to my car and thinking about it, uh, you know, that's the thing is it's not a film that makes you feel uh, occasionally it does here and yeah. there, but it is a film that makes you think. And any feeling you might get, I had the same thought with uh, Good Night and Good Luck, a film that I expected to be uh, emotionally resonant, but it's intellectually resonant. And then if you if you do the work with your mind, then actually your feelings will follow uh, in my, at least for me. You should put that on a bumper sticker. If you, if you do the work with your mind, your feelings will follow. Yeah, but nothing about my life uh, <laughs> leads me to uh, would. I think people would be confused if I said that. Um, but the uh, but just this idea of this character who and that's the thing. I don't. I feel like anything I say about him, uh, like David, he has to write the review for Inherent Vice. I have to write the review for Mister Turner. And I feel like anything that I say about the character is too reductive uh, because I think there's so much to him, but. You, the arc that you see is this guy who is very much, he expresses himself through his art, uh, and that is basically it, though he does have a great deal of affection for his father, but really nobody else. Um, and I think he very much uh, likes that he is in the mainstream and that he is appreciated and that he is loved. Uh, and then as art and is actually championed by people, but then you see, you know, you see the art world start to change and you see that suddenly he, and he's also, and he's starting to change a little bit. He's kind of going with his instincts and then art is moving away from that. So he actually finds himself outside the mainstream and that's, and right around that time is when he starts to really commit to other people. Um, and so I don't know, it's just something that I, when I look at it that way and I, and again, that even feels way too small. Um, but, uh, and I get, I mean, you could say it's about sort of the fickle nature of fame and success and how that can't be what drives you. Not that I think that's necessarily what drives him. No. Again, there's so much, there's so much to the film. And also on top of everything else, the acting is great, but it is beautiful. It is a beautiful yeah. film. I was, there's was several dick, shots that the audience like gasp out loud yeah. at. It was a Dick Pope uh, yeah. shot it. And I think it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Not unlike the paintings themselves that yeah. he would do. And so I... I really like it. At times, I love it. Uh, it it is not currently made my top ten, but I rearrange <laughs> based on how I'm feeling at any particular moment. Um, and so uh, it might wind up in there, but uh, as of right now, I, I think it's hovering right around number fifteen. Um, but it's a film that I uh, I don't know. It's it's one of the things that I like about Mike Lee is that just when you think you know what you're you can expect, he says, ah, "I'm going to do this now." What do you think, asshole? <laughs> So <laughs> I just I I mean I didn't love the movie either but I did think it was a very warm and generous and gracious movie and just didn't its willingness to let him be kind of contradictory and oh yeah but still sympathetic and I just thought the entire scope of it was very uh well like I said generous <laughs> and I think that kind of kindness in movies isn't explored very often and i appreciate well, it, that it, it is in his i mean that's that that's, might be i haven't seen very many michael lee movies well that's that's what i love about him is yeah. that he feels like he owes it he he loves his characters too much to lie about them he will let them be contradictory he will let them be ugly at times uh because he feels like i i might as well tell the truth about them and yeah. it's uh, it's something i respect greatly about him as a filmmaker 
So I think we can move on now. All right. Uh, the last movie I saw that day was Eden. It's the new film by Mia Hansen Love, whose last film, uh, Goodbye First Love, was incredible and really ambitious for a film of its size. It took place over like 12 years. This one takes place over 20 with the same core group of actors around the electronic dance movie, music scene. Um, and it's a really just interesting exploration of how the passion that drives someone when they're like 18 or so and ends up defining their life can kind of fade by the time they get in their 30s and maybe aren't as successful as they'd hoped. Um, and so yeah, I gotta tell you, I, I don't, you guys, I don't like movies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's really a very good exploration to that, uh, very sharply done and has one of the most heartbreaking scenes I've seen all year, but I don't want to describe it too much because it's such a subtly subtle scene that you could easily miss it or it could define the whole movie for you. Hmm. Um, but it'll be released next spring. Um, so hopefully everyone will get a chance to see that. Uh, that was my Sunday. Uh, my Monday started with the Russian movie, no, wait, Bulgarian movie called Victoria that has an incredible premise. Um, it's about a man and woman who are trying to escape Bulgaria kind of at the height of communism in the, like the late 1970s. Um, and right before they're about to leave, like a couple of weeks before the woman gets pregnant and the people who are going to like ferry them out of the country are like, we don't want to risk a pregnant woman on the journey. So she has to stay there until she delivers the child. She's like, fine. She doesn't really want the child, but you know. Abortions aren't really happening at the time. Um, so she sticks around. The baby's born and discovered it has no umbilical cord. So all of a sudden the communist government holds it up as this shining example of like Soviet pride. So now she <laughs> can't leave because of this child that she never wanted. Um, and it becomes a very funny exploration of communism. You know, pokes a lot of fun at the now dead government, which is easy to do when the government's dead. Mm -hmm. um, but then by the time communism falls and the child like is no longer the shining example – it becomes surprisingly sad and very mournful. And it's a really, I think, mature look at kind of the lingering effects of communism that like things weren't all better just because the people were more free all of a sudden. Right. Um, I feel like I should jump in before your next film because this is a great segue. Speaking of communism, yeah. I don't I mean, maybe you, this is on your list. Maybe you saw, did you see red army? No. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, do you know what it's about? Hmm. Uh, it's about the Soviet national hockey team, uh, that was, that dominated international hockey for decades, um, into, into the eighties. Um, it's, but it's, it's the team that got beat in miracle, you know? Okay. Um, and they were nicknamed the red army. Um, it's, but it's more specifically about one of their defensemen, uh, Slava Fetisov and, um, his sort of journey, uh, you find out the origin the, his original coach was a very nice sort of portly jolly man who thought very sort of um he was very cerebral about hockey and he would actually have his hockey players study ballet and stuff and that's how the i know you guys aren't big hockey fans but what has come to be known as the soviet style of hockey is a very graceful pass heavy hmm. choreographed brand of hockey as opposed to the North American brand, which especially back in that time was more brutal. Um, but then this guy, because th this, this coach, he, because he embarrassed himself or embarrassed the team in front of Khrushchev got fired and got replaced with someone from the Politburo who was incredibly strict and literally kept these hockey players away from their families 11 months out of the year. Um, they lived on like in camps, uh, lived in a camp and just practiced constantly. Um, and uh, then later, Slava Fetisov ended up being – he ended up being the first player offered – the first Soviet player offered um, a spot in the NHL, but ended up 
but he was not the first to make it because of I don't want to get into the story too much, but uh, he the a lot of the conflict comes from this guy Fatisov is a true like comrade and a true patriot, but um, some of the things that both the team does and the Soviet government does, which the the movie very um, strongly argue, argues are often one and the same. The team is essentially a the you know the the Red Army team was essentially the Soviet government or the Politburo in you know in microcosm um so he has the these i guess crises you know he's a patriot but he's feeling very disrespected and jerked around by the government and then eventually he comes to he does come to america and has a rough time of it at first and then goes on to be a part of the detroit red wings hockey team that won back-to-back um stanley cups in the 90s um it's a real quick movie it's like 95 minutes uh and it's a great yarn and it just sort of zooms along um with lots of stock footage going back into the into the 50s uh and before even with like propaganda and pro hockey propaganda because stalin like pro stalin wanted russian the russian dominance in hockey to be to to represent to the world that the soviet way of life was the right one you know we're great at this because we're living life the right way Mm -hmm. and so um children were encouraged to play hockey at a very very young age and it, uh it's it's a really fascinating movie it's uh, i could see i'm anticipating some criticisms of being a little bit overly uh slick and digestible you know uh because it does have a lot of fun like graphics and it moves around uh, a lot but um i would definitely recommend it all right i'm all getting right. a strong rocky four vibe from that <laughs> just this idea of all right, we got to program these these athletes to be the best. Not train, <laughs> program. Right. But this guy, Fatisov, is a hilarious subject. The mm-hmm. The opening scene, the opening shot, one of the opening shots is some stock footage of Reagan. But the first time you see him, you hear it. It's a the shot of him, and he's just checking his phone. And you hear the director asking him questions. Like, can you tell us what it was like? And he just like looks at his phone, <laughs> and he's like, I'm working. <laughs> and he's looking and so there's a pause and then the director has got you know burning daylight or whatever starts asking questions again and Fatisov without looking away from his phone just goes just gives him the finger gives the finger to the camera and that's like our introduction to Slava Fatisov uh, so it's a, it's, that gives you an idea of the kind of fun movie that it is anyway that's all right. it that's all for Red Army <laughs> Um, the last movie I, I feel saw, like I'm encroaching like it's your show this week no I appreciate the breaks from uh, yapping constantly I'm sure the listeners do too um, the last movie I saw that day was uh, called The Wonders it won the Grand Prix at Cannes which damn it I pronounced it wrong it's Cannes for the last time everybody it's Cannes uh, <laughs> um, uh, so it won the Grand Prix there but Baracus doesn't have distribution yet which is unfortunate because it's a really strong movie it's about this uh, family of beekeepers um, especially the eldest daughter uh, they have four children. The eldest daughter is like 11 and she's just on the verge of kind of questioning whether her father's really all that great as he seems to be. Um, but also she has a like, ton of responsibility around the farm. Um, so it's a really good character piece, but it unfortunately feels like somebody at like a week before shooting was like, shouldn't this movie have a plot or something? So it has this whole <laughs> business about them trying to get on a reality show that never really works. Hmm. But when it's about just the family keeping bees, it's great. Um, so if you get a chance to check it out, definitely. They're not letting those bees go. They're keeping them. No, no, God, no. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, 
The next night, the first movie I saw was called Violet. It's kind of, I end up seeing one of these at AFI Fest every year where it's gorgeously shot and very well directed, but there's not a lot of emotion being expressed through the direction. It's, you know, just barely cracking the feature length thing. It's about 80 minutes long. Um, so yeah, it's the kind of thing that I could see the director doing something good in like two or three films from now, but for now I, I thought it was just okay. Uh, but the second movie I saw, which was another directorial debut called Flapping in the Middle of Nowhere, um, it's a Vietnamese film about a young woman who is impregnated, uh, but the guy she would theoretically be having a child with is just a complete idiot who can barely take care of himself, let alone like the idea of taking care of a child. And it doesn't present that as like terribly funny. It's like, no, this is genuinely threatening. Yeah. <laughs> and this really puts the woman in a tough spot. Um, so while she's trying to figure out whether or not to have an abortion or like what exactly to do with the baby she ends up becoming a prostitute because apparently there's a whole market for pregnant prostitutes. I saw um, St. Vincent. I get it. <laughs> I have not seen St. Vincent yet, but is it's that... not that good. Okay. <laughs> but there is a pregnant prostitute. All right. It's a theme of the year. <laughs> um, so she carries on this relationship with this guy who at first doesn't really want her for sex, but he's willing to pay for her time just to be around a pregnant woman. So it's a little creepy, <laughs> but she also gets genuinely comforted by like somebody actually taking an interest in her struggles and, uh, her physical condition. Um, so it's a really well made movie and it takes place in this part of Vietnam where there's like a train running like through the middle of a neighborhood. So it's got this really great environment and world building going on that you don't often see in low budget movies that kind of take their environment for granted. Uh, so I was really impressed with that. Um, next day I saw a French Canadian film called two door Nicole, which translates to your sleeping Nicole, which is kind of a typical, uh, <laughs> what is it called? Two doors, Nicole. It's French. How do you spell it's not like a two door, like a no. <laughs> um, <laughs> like a Mazda. T U as in U. Oh, okay. And then D O R S. Okay. Are you writing that down to figure it out in your head? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, there's this uh, there was this old prostitute called Two Doors Nicole. <laughs> and she and she was there. There is a reason that that was her nickname. <laughs> um, yeah, well, we won't. Obviously, you're welcome. <laughs> I'll let you guys figure out what it is. I know what it is in my head. Scott, I'm sorry. Go on. This uh, movie, it's kind of a very typical uh, post-grad ennui movie, kind of like Francis Ha, not quite as imaginative or well-directed, but the lead actress gives a really good performance and has some great surrealism. Notably, there's this 11-year-old kid who keeps begging her to come uh, babysit him again, uh, but he has the voice of like a suave 35 year old <laughs> and he speaks very eloquently about the passion he feels for. Her. Um, so it has some very funny touches like that. I don't, I didn't think the movie is totally successful, but I think it's totally worth checking out. Um, then after that, I saw a movie called Haimu, which is a South Korean film about an illegal immigration smuggling operation aboard a boat. All right. And, you got to tell me how to spell this one too. All right. It is H A E M O O. All right. And it being a South Korean movie gets very weird and <laughs> very violent as it goes on, but is very entertaining um, and definitely does not shy away from the sometimes grisly nature of human trafficking. <laughs> um, so, yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't have distribution either, which I don't understand because it totally plays to an audience. But um, so, yeah, so check that out if you get a chance. The last movie I saw that day was Still Alice, which is coming out later this year. Uh, do you need to spell that, David? I can figure that out. OK, thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, Julianne Moore has been touted as a best actress contender with good reason. I think she's especially strong actually before she plays a character who gets Alzheimer's early onset Alzheimer's. And I think she's actually strongest before that when she's just having to play a 
normal woman, but make her interesting mm-hmm. um, and kind of have very slight lapses of memory. Um, so I think that's really the strongest part of performance because before, yeah, before it becomes pure technique. Um, but it's a really strong movie. Usually these kind of movies, like they hire their directors just to get coverage and then they go home. But it's actually pretty sharply directed. They keep the camera on her for much longer than most directors would. Um, so yeah, I think it's a uncommonly strong movie, but ultimately kind of so-so in that it eventually just devolved in kind of a uh, Alzheimer's like awareness month sort of movie. Mm. Um, so it's the female Alzheimer's theory of everything. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also a much better movie before he got sick. I don't yeah, know. no, I kind of agree with that too. Um yeah, and actually the performance kind of has the same problem there, which kind of just becomes pure technique, mm. I think, anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, Kristen Stewart's also in it. She she doesn't give enough credit, I think, in the whole. I think she's really good in the movie and has been really good before. Um, you look like you're going to jump in to say something there. About Kristen Stewart? Yeah. I, um, I remember, even though I don't like the movie Into the Wild, I remember liking her a lot in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen very little else of her. I, I mean, listeners know I'm a fan of Snow White and the Huntsman, but she's not... Yeah, Adventureland the, is the one I always go back to. Right, for yeah, her. yeah. I think she's very good in that. I yeah. did see the first Twilight, and I thought, uh, yeah, she's fine. I saw her in uh, Panic Room. She oh yeah, was good in I Panic Room. She's in that. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't. Uh, so I, I guess this is all to say I don't have any strong opinion on Kristen Stewart, yeah. but I have liked her work in the past. Well, she eventually forms kind of the soul of the movie, and I think with good reason. Um, and then we're about to move in the last day, but I think Tyler saw one more movie that none of us saw at AFI Fest. And I saw one that one of you oh, okay. either, but Tyler should go first. Yeah. Okay. Well, I already talked about it last week, but I'll, I'll I will not shy away from talking about how much I dislike this film, um, and that is uh, Magician, the astonishing life and work of Orson Welles. Uh, uh, <laughs> it is just uh, the more I think about it, the more I realize it is such a waste of time and resources. Uh, it is about Orson Welles. Yes, I guess technically that's what you would say. It is not at all curious about him. It just, it's just, uh, I, I can't even put, it's, it's almost like a, this is your life kind of thing where it just, it says all the things he did. <laughs> Wikipedia entry. Basically. Yes. But not that in depth. <laughs> um, because, and it, it had access to. Bogdanovich, who was actually at the screening, Harry, I, uh, sorry, uh, is it Henry? Henry, I never know how you say the last name, like uh, Jaglum or okay. Jaglum oh, yeah. or something like that. Hold on. Peter Bogdanovich knew Orson Welles? I know. He's I so know. secretive about <laughs> I, I never heard him talk about it. Um, but that's the thing. They also interview Simon Callow, who's uh, an actor who's in Four Weddings and a Funeral. and American Idol. What? <laughs> oh, got it. Yes. Sorry. For a minute, I was like, well, I don't watch American Idol. They, they bring in this <laughs> this older British actor. To, um, but uh, and he's, but he's also a, a writer, and he wrote uh, – apparently, he's going to write three volumes of biography on Orson Welles. I've read the first two, um, and he's great. He's a wonderful writer. He's very in-depth. He's not afraid to hypothesize, which I like. Um, and he also wrote one about uh, Charles Lawton, which was also interesting. And so uh, they interview him. So they interview people who knew Orson Welles, had a great respect for Orson Welles, and also did a lot of research. But they, but the filmmaker, just none of that... Uh, Made the final cut? Yeah. None of that rubbed off on him. He doesn't seem to care. 
he does it's it almost feels a little bit cynical to me it feels like um he knew that if you make a movie about uh, a beloved uh film icon that will at the very least bring in the people that love that film icon that's why i saw it um but that's the thing if you if you don't know about orson welles and you see it you might think wow this is interesting I will now go and watch his films, which is, you know, that's a success. But at the same time, uh, that's the most it'll do is it will simply direct you towards better things. If you know anything about Orson (laughs) Welles, then you will see it and think, yeah, got it. I already knew all this going in. Uh, I've already seen his films. You're not telling me anything about them except how they got made, not why. Um, and it just frustrated me so much. It is just, like I said, uh, few things bother me more than uh, a wasted opportunity. This guy had access to people that were willing to talk at length about Wells and could talk at length about him. And he just didn't seem to care. And he went in, he put, he put in the effort to have clips from various interviews that Wells did, but never included anything of any substance. And it's just so frustrating. So, that's magician. My currently <laughs> um, my least favorite movie of the year, but without going into detail, I will probably be seeing a movie next week for more than one lesson. <laughs> I could be wrong. I feel like it'll pr- that with this one will probably uh take its place. Is it saving Christmas? It is saving Christmas. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> um Okay, uh, I want to talk about a movie that I also didn't like that also starts with them and also is a documentary. But first, I want to ask you, Scott, did you go see any of the like non new movies, the older movies, the uh I don't know what you would call them. Uh retrospective screenings. Yeah, they did Cinema Paradiso, which I uh would like to see again to confirm my suspicions that it's not very good. <laughs> I was younger when I saw it and I thought it was good, but I think it's like an American beauty type thing. A lot of people um, love that movie. I still never saw it. Uh they but they also did Love Streams, um and they showed a the DeSica film that I yeah yesterday today and tomorrow did you go I, to see any of those no I usually don't I usually prioritize the newer movies um, but also I think they were all playing like early morning and weekdays and I actually right. went to work during AFI Fest this year right um, so it wasn't really happening and I just bought Love Streams on Blu-ray so I don't want to okay like, yeah. all right um, I want to talk briefly about a documentary called Merchants of Doubt that played at AFI um, it's directed by Robert Kenner who made Food Inc which is a movie that I liked um merchants of doubt is uh it's hard to say what it's about because it's not actually about what it says it's about (laughs) um the premise is that it's uh about the type of people who do for a living what aaron eckhart's character in thank you for smoking does for a living which is essentially go um on tv news shows and represent in the guise of an expert represent the point of view of um uh, either a think tank that is actually you know propped up by uh an industry of some sort or the industry itself or um basically these people go on and re- and they're supposed to be experts in you know tobacco or whatever but um their real point is just to discredit the other argument and to make it seem like the minority argument that benefits this industry or whatever is more valid than it is. That's kind of their main job, um, which would be interesting. It'd be interesting. If that's really what it's about. And it starts off being about tobacco and it goes from there into maybe the most interesting segment of the film, which is about, um, uh, 
flame like flame fire retardants in furniture and huh. uh mm-hmm. how that how furniture made from the 70s until really only a few years ago maybe 10 years ago has tons of chemicals in it that don't really do anything and uh, uh can potentially be bad for you um and how that was sold not only to the public but also to legislators and to um uh groups like firefighters that were you know this sort of these facts were sort of ginned up to try and get this pushed through which is really just a way of taking um attention off of tobacco because that's how uh, that's what it all goes back to tobacco <laughs> but a little less than halfway in it gets to climate change and then the movie just becomes about climate change deniers and it sort of leaves this thing that's ostensibly its premise where its title is about what its title is about and just becomes a documentary about people who deny climate change and the sort of um, reasons they have for lying or for twisting or for whatever, you know, misrepresenting um, the, the, the science and keeping up this, keeping up this idea that there's not a consensus uh, or whatever. And it just becomes about that for most of its runtime. And I just, I guess it's, a little bit convincing it's not exactly unbiased it's very biased um which i don't actually necessarily have a problem with um and i assume it puts out this hypothesis that the reason for climate change is of course so many people smoking (laughs) (laughs) tobacco again Uh, you sons of bitches um but i guess it just felt a little disingenuous to me um and it it hurt the movie for me do you think it he did that because he felt like he needed the filmmaker needed to sort of arrive somewhere. There are so many documentaries out there that just wind up showing a portrait of a thing, but they don't, but films still need to have something of a journey, uh, at the very least a journey of discovery. Do you think he felt like, okay, I'll focus on this one thing that's very big and very, and frankly, very talked about right now. If I, I will land there as though it is the third act of the film. And so I, so it feels like a, a climax because it's something that we all talk about. Do you think maybe that was his thinking? I just feel like he's trying to, I, I, or maybe that's what he wanted to do all along. I honestly don't know. Like it, but it feels so like, it feels like he started making one movie and then got distracted and ended up like, Hmm. or not distracted, but it's like suddenly became more interested in like he was making, it's like he was, uh, it's like he, he was writing a novel and he introduced a new character in the third chapter and fell so in love with that character that he forgot the rest of the story <laughs> and just made the rest of the book about this character. Hmm. Um, uh, and I, I don't know. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't love it. Okay. I'm sorry. And I also feel like it wasn't entirely, it wasn't very educational. I kind of feel like it's repetitive and I, I get it. I know what, mm. I know what he's saying. And, uh, I mean, there's some things that are very interesting, you know, these, because some of these guys who do this thing for a living are, you know, they go on on TV and they represent a certain point of view. But when they're asked about it in camera, off like uh, you know, off of TV on the documentary documentarian's camera, they're completely unapologetic about it. Like, yeah, this is what I do, and uh, this is how it works, and this is why it works, and uh, I have no shame about that. I'm hmm. just doing my job. Uh, that 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 part was a little interesting. It was yeah. definitely interesting, but. Uh, we spent too much time on this, and that's the last one I've seen. 
Well, no, that's not true. We have one more. Yeah. Uh, And then, so on the final day, the first movie I saw was From What Is Before, which is a five and a half hour. uh, uh, What? I think, oh, Filipino movie. Yeah, that's the country it's from. Uh, Surprisingly, it has no distribution because very few people want to sit through a five and a half hour movie. There are only about 30 of us at the screening. Um, It's not the longest movie I've ever seen, but it's definitely the longest I've seen at a stretch with no breaks. What is the longest movie you've ever seen? Satan Tango. Um, oh, okay. But they showed that with intermissions, too, right. actually. There um, was no intermission in this? No, not a one. I did take a bathroom break, and as one might expect with a five-and-a-half-hour movie, you end up going at the wrong time. Um, <laughs> and so I came back right as there's an old man holding a bloody stick. <laughs> like, well, clearly I've missed something very important here. Um, I figured out eventually what happened. but um, <laughs> That's hilarious. I think I might have a theory or two myself. <laughs> um but it's a really good movie, uh, and if people have the stomach for that length of time, they should check it out. It's about um, – I'm going to have to quote here because it's somewhat politically informed. I don't know the history of the Philippines, surprisingly. Uh, it's about a small coastal uh, barrio, which I guess is a type of town in uh, the Philippines, uh, in the final days before President Ferdinand Marcos imposed martial law in 1972. Um, it's got a similar tempo to, like, the White Ribbon in that mm. these, like, random acts of, like, crazy violence keep happening in this town. Um, it kind of comes to more like satisfactory conclusions about where those are coming from than the white ribbon does, but it's still like a really good, just as a character piece, it's a really good investigation into this time, this place. It has some amazing locations and it'll get to these like crazy scenes that there's this one where these, this woman's like praying at a rock for her sister who's severely handicapped. Um, and the waves are like crashing against the rock in such a way that if the rock wasn't there, she would just be swallowed by the waves. And we can see like the whole picture. So like the waves seem to be like right in front of her before hitting her. Um, so it gets these like incredible images on film and is just like the total effect of it is very powerful. And actually, you know, I mean, once you settle into it, it passes pretty quickly. Let me ask you a question. I, I doubt that. Let me ask you a question. Relatively <laughs> specific. I don't know. Like, I didn't the, feel the pacing like, of the white ribbon, but there's three of them, basically. Is what I don't know. Saying. I didn't. I, I talked to other people after the movie, too, and I was not the only one who didn't really feel like I'd been in there for five and a half hours. Did you get hungry? Uh, I brought a snack, you know. Okay. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, and I'm, I'm iffy about even asking this question because I'm not sure how I feel about it. Um, when you see a movie that is, let's say, over three hours... <laughs> Um, do you find yourself wondering, did this need to be this long? And I don't like to, cause I like to give the filmmaker the benefit of the doubt and just think like, if he, th- if he thinks that this is what was necessary, then, uh, then I'll go with him. Um, and this is a film that you liked, uh, and that you responded to. So at the end, you, and you even said that once you get into it, the, you just, time just goes away apparently um but did you find yourself do you find yourself feeling like thinking back on like eh, that probably they probably could have cut an hour and i and it still would have been as effective as it was or are you willing to say like it was effective and it was five and a half hours thus why would you why would you need to cut any out i mean i tend more towards the latter um I don't like to play armchair editor because I don't know what the Mm -hmm. movie would ultimately look like. I mean, you know, I mean, several of the shots carry on for like five minutes or more. So it's easy to say like, well, if they just got 30 seconds out of every shot, (laughs) it'd probably be an hour right there. (laughs) Right. Um, But, you know, it's. Did you. No, you said there were only 30 people in the theater. Thereabouts, yeah. And you were were alone? You didn't see it with a. 
Oh, no, I knew another guy there, but he just happened to. Did you at any point lift the armrests and lay down on the? Because <laughs> I think that's honestly. There wasn't what quite I would have that done. much space. It was in one of the smaller theaters okay. at the. Because, uh, I mean, thank God. I mean, the theaters at the seats at the Chinese theater are at least comfortable. Yeah. Can you imagine five and a half hours at the silent movie theater? Oh, yeah. Or something? That's I was thinking of. They replaced their seats, but it's not still like the most comfortable seat in town. I went and saw Mysteries of Lisbon, which did have uh, an intermission for 15 minutes, but was about six hours long. Okay. Um, and uh, thankfully, it was the Wilshire screening room, so very uh, comfortable seats. Uh, before they um, changed the seats. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I haven't been there since, but now I'm not, I'm not looking forward to it. But uh, Can't, I feel so betrayed. <laughs> yeah, that that was one where it didn't work for me, and it felt because I knew it. I knew it had been cut down from a miniseries, and I thought either this needed to stay a miniseries, or they need to cut out some of these plots because as it is right now, it winds up just not being satisfying either way. Um, and I don't. And I again, when it comes to like, even though David and I, I don't remember if it was in this episode or or the movie journal. Uh, we talk about how, how much I appreciate it when somebody, when a filmmaker makes a movie that's a hundred minutes or less. Um, if, if they make one that's longer, I do want to give them the benefit of the doubt and think, okay, well, if it did, it work for me emotionally. If so, then every minute was necessary. That's that, kind of where I land. Okay. Yeah. That was in, it was in the movie journal. We were talking about Brett Ratner's masterpiece, <laughs> Hercules, which clocks in at a cool 98 minutes. <laughs> Not that not the last time the mysteries of Lisbon will be talked about in the same way as uh, Brett Ratner's Hercules. Um, but yeah, it honestly, honestly, it didn't feel as long as the last movie I saw, which was Foxcatcher. All right, which was interminable. Which okay, I, I am in the minority here. I saw it last night. All right, so. I thought it was fantastic. It's uh, my favorite of Bennett Miller's three features so far, uh, and I, I was telling Tyler um, off. Uh, off mic right mm. <laughs> who can tell i'm anymore? trying to remember if, if we were we record everything now <laughs> yeah i know that's what i'm trying to figure out if we i, I talked about this already um well not on but, this episode anyway. okay yeah. I, I i don't um but i've said before that i don't read i try not to read other people's reviews until i've written mine so i had no idea i've only recently in like the past week i guess started reading reviews and realized that a lot of people are down on foxcatcher <laughs> when i watched it and i thought it was fantastic i mean top 10 top 10 so far not top five but top 10 the year so far fantastic for me i just i thought the tension in moneyball is really strong between bennett miller's more calm directorial approach and a very fast-paced screenplay Mm -hmm. that could have been filmed like in social network fashion or west wing fashion you know and i thought that's that's where bennett miller should be is bringing a calmer approach to something with more going on there is nothing going on in Foxcatcher. I was I, like, I think I loved it. Maybe I need to is, see the. Uh, maybe I'm the person for five I'm, and a half hour movies because I loved firmly, it. I'm firmly in between the two of you, but I would venture to say uh, I lean more towards David. But I still did not. Uh, I do not love it as much as, as David does. In fact, I wouldn't say that I love it. There are things I love about it. Um, I go with A minus. I'd probably go B. I like Channing Tatum in it a lot. I think he's great. And I like and Mark, Mark Ruffalo. Ruffalo. I think Mark Ruffalo. I think is Steve Carell is awful. Really? Yeah. I think he's I think he's perfectly cast because and other people have pointed this out. His character is practically Michael Scott from The Office. Yeah. That's true. But they don't really play that up. And his voice goes in and out of this vocal pattern he's chosen. The makeup doesn't make him look any more like the guy, but oh, just I looks looked ridiculous. At a of the guy. I don't know what yeah. the guy looks like. It's like nothing about that character feels actually well thought out at all. And it well does seem or, like it seemed like they were tackling a character that was beyond them. 
Um, I think but he Steve, also doesn't have that like unknowability. That no, no. I just mean it was beyond them. No, I, know, I don't but think I'm it was they, beyond anybody. Yeah, no, I'm saying that they didn't play into that. They right. like address him very head on, but don't really right. like. I do sort of. I mean, they did a, a couple things with his mom, but for the most part, I do like that. That's they, so. That's such a banal scene. <laughs> it is, though. I think she's good in it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, there. That's the thing. It, the I, there are things that Steve Carell plays that I actually responded to. Uh, but it's underneath, it's underneath the makeup, it's underneath the voice, it's underneath, underneath all the, uh, all the aesthetic things, uh, like emotionally, when you see this idea that the way Mark, uh, the Channing Tatum's character, the way he feels invigorated that somebody is finally choosing him over his brother, um, ostensibly, um, he feels excited and invigorated and alive and in those moments, I feel the same with Steve Carell because he finally is necessary. That's the thing is in his family, there's nothing vital. There's nothing important. He doesn't he doesn't run a company. Right. He doesn't do anything. So he's not really necessary. Uh, I got a strong Sunset Boulevard vibe to the relationship uh, between him and the two uh, Schultz brothers. Um, so I feel like there's an emotional connection. I, there. I like that comparison, actually, because um – I feel like a lot of people are not giving the movie credit for being kind of <laughs> darkly comic. Uh, and well, I think that's its strongest attribute for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, the more I think about it, the more stuff there is that's funny to me, and that's sort of I would say that's true of Sunset Boulevard as well. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that is very funny. Um, I don't want to like spoil too many of the best lines. There's one in particular that Steve Carell says that is yeah. that is fucking hilarious to me. But there's also like the part when he's that's as creepy and tragic as it is hilarious when his mom comes to watch the practice. Oh yeah. That's a great scene. That's, and he starts teaching yeah. the guy incredibly basic wrestling moves just to impress his mom. Yeah. Uh it's sad and everything, but it's it's really funny. I feel like it's one of those movies I'm not, you know, get out ahead of this. I'm not actually comparing the movie to There There Will Be Blood. There will be blood. But There Will Be Blood is a movie that I find funnier every time I watch it. Mm-hmm. And I can find – I can see Foxcatcher being like – once I'm like, okay, I know what awful thing happens at the end. I know what we're building up to. I know what this dread is about. Let's just focus on the, the general sort of weirdness of this guy and have fun with it. And I wonder if maybe that performance and the way he's made up would have made – I feel like it would have been more effective if the film itself had been more stylized. As it is, the film feels like it takes place in reality, which makes him seem even more of a not the type of I'm sorry to use the word freak, but um, not the type of freak that you do run across in everyday life. Uh, but the kind that would have that, the, you know, Sunset Boulevard is a highly stylized film. And so Norma Desmond seems like she would, I think, occupy that uh, space. Maybe this is semantic. I think Sunset Boulevard is a more ostensibly stylized film. Uh, but actually, if you read my review, I make the argument that uh, Bennett Miller is actually um, a sly formalist, and there are a lot of stylistic choices that he's making. Oh, there definitely are. Um, yes, in in terms of the way uh, the way that he um, he sort of uh, flattens things out, um, both in terms literally by using long lenses a lot of the time, um, but also even in terms of his his editing, it gets into a rhythm where um sometimes uh a shot of Steve Carell sitting and staring at a TV for a while is seems no more or less important than an establishing shot of the gym from the mm-hmm. outside 
uh, and everything sort of gets put on the same plane, which I understand could make it feel interminable, to use your <laughs> word, uh, Scott. But I feel like it's an incredibly patient movie, both in its pacing and also in its um, the visual choices that that he makes. Even even when things get uh, when it you know becomes a true crime thriller of sorts yeah. at the end, he never makes aesthetic choices that reflect that. You know, keeps that same distance. That's interesting that you say that because now that you mention it. Putting it like that, um, hang on a sec. Sorry, this is a thought forming right now, but I... Then I will respond. We to can't allow dead air, so talk, you go ahead. Yeah, I'll respond to what we're talking about here. I just don't think it's stylized enough. I mean, I thought of There Will Be Blood too, and I thought of The Master, which are much more daring movies, and this is just so content to just almost like read a court record of what happened. Even I mean, it does take a lot of liberties with what happened, but it feels like a court record. It doesn't feel like a piece of cinema. It doesn't feel active in any way. It feels so removed, it's almost dead. All right, here we go. <laughs> so, uh, and you know what? This actually incorporates your uh, your comments as well. In a way, it's almost like um, a reenactment that you would see on a TV show, except a really in-depth one. And I say that in a good way as well. Because by flattening things out, like you were talking about, uh, it's almost as though... I was talking a moment ago about the Orson Welles film and how it refused to ask – it never asks why, and I feel like it should. This is a film that says, like, we're not going to ask why because I don't think you – I don't think it's possible to know why. We've got a couple things here and there that are character things, but it would maybe not cheapen the event. But for us to just maybe come up with a random idea as to why this horrible thing happened uh, – that is a thing that we're not comfortable doing and would probably be wrong anyway. So we will actually have every scene be ostensibly the key scene to explain how this happened. But I'm actually going to walk back a little bit from what I said because it doesn't okay. commit totally to that. If it done like a rubber Brisson thing where it was like just completely removed from everything, that would have mm-hmm. been fine. But it also has like that scene where you're like Rex's his hotel room and it's all handheld camera. Mm-hmm. And it has, like, the swelling music when he's at the wrestling match. It has all these, like, very poorly thought out stylistic touches that aren't nearly as strong as if they kept the long, you know, the wide shot. And But see, I'll grant you the hotel room scene, but the, the wrestling stuff I actually think is great because, you're right, yeah, the music is there, but the music is almost at odds. There's, like, an irony between the music and the shot choice in that it's not, like... Um, Raging Bull or whatever, you know, during the wrestling matches, um, the music feels like Rocky. I, I'm, I guess I'm going to keep <laughs> comparing it to because there are more boxing movies than wrestling movies. Yeah. The music feels like it should be Rocky, but what we're watching is not. Uh, I don't feel like he's recognizing that disparity at all. I wonder if maybe because when you think about it, a lot of the uh, like the two scenes you just mentioned are Mark, Mark and Dave based. Although I, I also like love the scene in the helicopter between. <laughs> That's great. I, I would have loved a lot. I would have liked more scenes like that yeah. where you actually do see a little bit of humanity coming out in the John DuPont character. Humanity that, by the way, I went home and I watched some footage of him. Humanity that is there. He's an oh, yeah. odd, eccentric, crazy, crazy man. Yeah, people should read more about what was really going on at the ranch. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, but it also, it's just... Um, but that's the other thing. You know, uh, years ago when I first saw uh, – I think I saw Manhunter before I saw Silence of the Lambs. And that 
kind of messed me up as far as how I appro- – it doesn't mess me up. It just puts me very much outside the mainstream when it comes to approaching Hannibal Lecter. The idea of when you hear people talk about uh, – oh, shoot um, – Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy and that sort of thing, they always say, oh, I never would have thought. Right. Well, the way Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter, you never would have thought. He seems so polite. Um, the way Anthony Hopkins plays him, fun though he is um, and – Committed though he is, uh, literally. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we all thought of the joke, we just didn't make it. Yeah, um, we did. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, so, um, but I remember when Scott Glenn in Silence of the Lamb says, "You don't want to let Hannibal Lecter in your head." And then you walk up and you see the way Anthony Hopkins is playing playing him. You think, "No problem. I'm not <laughs> going to let this James Bond villain into my head." And I feel like in the same way, I watched this supercut of news reports talking about what eventually happened at Foxcatcher Farms. And you hear a lot of people talk about John DuPont and saying, well, he was eccentric and he was all this. And so you can have a, the character be eccentric, but the way that he's played and the way he's written, he's so inhuman. And I understand that his money buys a lot of, not necessarily credibility, but it buys a lot of acceptance. I get that. But I feel like he's so, he, that performance is so stylized and again, there's a lot of good emotion happening underneath, but the service is so stylized that I feel like nobody would ever want to be near him, uh, no matter how much money he throws at them. Um, and so, but that, but again, like I still like some of the work that Steve Carell is doing in that helicopter scene. If we'd had maybe even just two more scenes like that, yeah. I feel like that would have, for me, sold the relationship a lot more. But, but I think isn't the scene in the trophy room with the whole team? pretty similar no i don't because he's totally manipulating them into like cheering for him it, it's but not because he's drunk i in and in the helicopter scene he's also under the influence there's some sort of yeah. I, I feel like yeah but i think he actually scene. gets channing tatum like on his level in that scene whereas in the other it's like very clear that they're just doing it for his benefit yeah i i think so and so just and that the helicopter scene it's nice because it breaks down the the barrier between these two characters and that's the thing is there is a barrier between them that's that's the that's the problem is i can't i don't think the film is interminable i think there are a lot of very deliberate choices that for me work pretty well and again i can't even i went in sort of with my guard up in regard to steve carell's performance because it was so stylized and again, all that stuff is there. That make the makeup certainly the nose is not necessary, but um, I maybe it's not necessary, but I liked it. It's it just hard for me to see. Me. It's hard for me to see past it, partially because it's a different color than the rest of his face too. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, he's supposed to have sort of pasty and blotchy skin. I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the way what they do to his hair. I'm okay with the teeth, uh, but the the nose like is just so it's it's even shot in a way to really emphasize. Um, and you know, he is a, an ornithologist among other things. Um, but, uh, if only I could remember what they might be. Philatelist uh, philanthropist. Oh, thank you. Okay. Uh, but, uh, so maybe they're trying to make him look a little bird-like, maybe a little predatory. So maybe some of it is that, but, uh, but yeah, I just feel like there are things that they could have gone a little bit further with and it would have worked more for me. That said, the relationship between Mark and Dave, I bought. 100%. Yeah. Even just the way, like the way that it's because of who they are and their relationship. It's so physical and so specific a way that I completely buy them as wrestlers. I buy them as brothers. And those two performances are, go a long way to selling the, the reality of the film. 
Mark Ruffalo, I, Channing Tatum, uh, it is maybe one of my favorite, it may be my favorite performance of his. Um, but Mark Ruffalo especially, uh, I remember I read Matt Zoller Seitz's review of the film and he said that Ruffalo manages to do something that very few people do, which is play an inherently nice guy and make him interesting. Yeah. Um, and he is interesting and you like, you really just like want to embrace him and you see the way he's able to manage John and the way he's able to manage Mark and you realize like, and then you realize, oh right, he's a dad of young children. He knows how to do this. So that's the thing. There's a lot to the film, uh, a lot that really works for me. Um, I don't love it as much as David does, but I don't dislike it as much as other people. Well, I think we should end by saying if you d- if, if you disagree with me, then obviously you're stupid, and you need, <laughs> obviously you need yeah. to grow out of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, this Disagreement with you is a phase that people go through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, this was a fun episode. Thanks for being here, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can find us at com. That's where uh, movie re- my movie review of Foxcatcher is uh, and all of the, all of the sorts of stuff. Um, and you can email email us at david at com or tyler at com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at The Pretension. You can and must follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Um, Tyler, your other podcast is called More Than One Lesson. It is. Is that right? Yes. What's going on over there? Uh, let's see. Uh, we just did a couple of uh, Best of Pictures episodes about Forrest Gump and Schindler's List. Uh, I believe the next full episode will be about uh, Interstellar. Okay. Oh. With the companion film Planet of the Apes, the original. There we go. Interesting. Um, my other podcast is about TV. It's called Hey, Watch This. Uh, this week we are talking about uh katherine heigl's return to um nighttime soap state of affairs and we are talking about the current season of the amazing race which comes Woo. back after a week off uh so that's all uh, you can find that at, at battleshipretention.com as well uh scott where can people find you on the internet besides battleship retention also on twitter at rail of tomorrow and at criterioncast.com where i'm now also hosting a podcast uh we brought back the mainline episodes of that show We've done episodes on Seconds, Red River, and The Seventh Seal, and we'll be doing uh, Band of Outsiders next. Cool. Uh, Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 